Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, December the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and apologies if I sound a bit stuffed up today with my traditional pre-Christmas cold. Before we do start, another reminder to get your questions in now for our special Ask Me Anything show, which we'll be putting out over Christmas. Simply write, or even better, speak your question into an email to politicspodcast at irishtimes.com, and I'll do my best to get a straight answer out of the politics team, or indeed to give one myself if so required. Now, later on today, I'm going to be discussing the emerging corruption scandal at the European Parliament with our Europe correspondent, Naomi O'Leary. But first, Jack Horgan Jones and Cliff Taylor are here, because, Jack, you have been covering this developing story about potentially controversial reform of the planning laws. Well, Cliff, you are the person whom we all look to for the Olympian overview of how such matters are likely to play out for Irish society and the Irish economy as a whole. Hello to you both. Morning. Hi, Hugh. I'm very jealous of Cliff's introduction. All right. Someday you will scale those heights, Jack. (laughs) Did you describe him as Olympian? Yes. Wonderful. (laughs) From great heights, from great heights, Jack, I look down and survey things, you know. (laughs) Are you worried about living up to this now? Living up to this billing could be difficult. We all know it's true, but you know, pull your socks up. You have to live with that when I turn to you, Cliff. But first, actually, Jack, I'm going to go to you because what is this legislation? Where did it come from and where is it at and what does it propose? So it's something that's been heavily trailed for a very long time. Um, A radical, I suppose, certainly in the government's own telling, a radical overhaul of planning legislation and a planning system which hasn't really been revitalised or refreshed since the the Planning and Development Act of, of 2000. So 20 plus years ago. Critics of the planning system and of the legislation effectively say, uh, in a nutshell, that, you know, it's unwieldy. The legislation is really hard to navigate. It's self-contradictory in parts. And that, as a whole, the planning system is kind of too susceptible to court challenge and challenge via judicial review, um, which renders it not fit for purpose and makes it very difficult and time-consuming and expensive in many instances to move forward with the kind of projects that... The government sees as particularly, I suppose, in narrow sense, politically important, but in a broader sense, important to kind of tackle infrastructural deficits or ongoing chronic issues in housing or, you know, providing for the future of the energy system. Um, all of which uh, projects uh, in these categories regularly face delays, as Eamon Ryan was saying yesterday, which slowed them down for three or four years. And he was making the point that you know if 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 a project at this stage gets slowed down three or four years you'll have a you'll have a deficit when it comes to hitting hitting targets that are within the life frame of this government and within the kind of 2030 uh time frame for for uh, both housing for all and uh, some of our binding emissions targets so you, you can see the kind of imperative towards reform so what they're trying to do effectively is in some ways kind of corral the uh the objections uh, that might occur into the kind of plan making stage so whether that's at a local or regional level uh, that you know during the kind of zoning process for want of a better description you kind of have the row then 
and that kind of detoxifies the the current space when uh, you know a lot of the the argumentation happens over individual planning applications relating to an individual project. Um, that's kind of the the overall frame. And then uh, there's several kind of subsidiary aspects to it. One of which is is proving to be particularly controversial. But we'll quickly rattle through the other ones. Um, gathering more powers around the ministers. One giving guidelines issued by his 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 office. Uh, effect that they have to be reflected in local and regional plans on a mandatory basis, which is also developed, uh, which has also provoked a little bit of of, of kickback because there's a uh, a suggestion that the the powers of the local authorities and indeed of the Oireachtas itself are being slightly uh, watered down and, and too much power agglomerated to within the um, within the, the the offices of the minister, and then introduction of timelines for decision making within on board Planola and fines for breaching them. Now, again, one of the criticisms here is that they're talking about these things in the round but you know there's no indication of what the timelines may be when they're going to come in what the fines may be so there does seem to be an awful lot of work still to be done and then there's also a renaming and uh, reforming stru- structures of the of the the controversy hit on board uh, planala um where things have really kind of hit a major speed bump and there is a fairly significant row within the government now is around judicial reviews which we, we may get to in a while yeah, well, there's an awful lot there. Just to go back to one part of it, because it's a sort of specific problem which has blown up in the government's face over the last year or so, and that's on board Planola, which is um, down to, I think, a complement of four at the moment when it's supposed to be at nine or thereabouts. So a new system has been put in place to, or is proposed to be put in place to um, to, to make new appointments to that board directly by the minister on a temporary basis? Yes, so bear with me here because we're in the, the weeds a little. There, there's two pieces of legislation. There's the Planning and Foreshore Amendment Bill, which is working its way through the Oireachtas currently, and it, there's votes on amendments on that, I think, at five past three this afternoon, I think. Uh, and that gives the power to the minister to appoint... Um, Temporary, uh, temporary board members to onboard planning because, as you say, it's it's massively underpowered at the moment, arising from the controversies that have beset it over the last uh, nearly a year at this stage, and also, um, and and that compounds pre-existing problems that it had tackling backlogs and being overworked. So there's a real there's a real issue there. Now he is facing charges that you know this removes kind of you know layers of, of checks and balances that were put in in the 1980s and 1990s over the planning system when scandals around corruption uh, emerged then which sought to kind of remove the political element or at least moderate the political influence over the planning system and kind of put it in in in, in, a, in a kind of state of, of, of splendid isolation now of course those checks and balances there there has been have been slight, slightly discredited by uh, some of the controversies at on board Planola this year, but you know he he is facing fairly strident criticism from from the the opposition that they're effectively going back in time and going back to uh, to a, a kind of pre-reform uh, state. So that's that's what's going through at the moment, and then you have a more kind of fundamental reshaping of it that's envisaged in the planning and development uh, bill, or at least we're told it's in the planning and development bill because while there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy over what may or may not be in there, we still haven't actually seen this thing yet. It's supposed to be this mammoth piece of legislation, 600 plus pages long in its current form, I'm told, but all we have is a is a is a is a pithy little 22 page document uh, which um, outlines the kind of main moving parts and has, after its publication, led to these various controversies and and backbiting and infighting within the the government. I'll come back to you about some of those controversies and the backbiting and also the, the, some of the questions of, of of the timing as well, Jack. But but Cliff, I mean, you've written a lot about the problems that this government faces with housing and its you know its difficulties in delivering on on its promises. 
most of which I think come back to questions of supply and how you how you you make supply faster and work better. The piece you wrote lately about it, which I I think it's fair to say, uh, argues that the government needs to be more hands on and more interventionist in terms of in terms of its role there. I noticed in that piece you didn't really refer to. You made a brief reference to report reform of the planning system. Um, I know this is a complicated and nuanced. Uh, subject, but how important is the planning system in terms of the checks or the choke points that currently exist on supply? Ah, yeah, there's no doubt, uh, Hugh, that it is. It is ab- absolutely central to what needs to be done. I mean, there are a lot of other questions and issues that need to be sorted as well, and that's, I suppose, it's why it's such a difficult challenge for the government that it crosses so many government departments and so many p- policy areas, and across the the increase in interest rates uh, has made things more difficult as well. It's going to hit the demand for housing and it's going to hit the supply of investment from big international funds into Ireland and just make the whole viability of house building more difficult. So that, that is an underlying problem here as well. But planning is, is one of the central issues. We had uh, Francis Rouen, who's head of the Competitors Council, writing in the paper a couple of weeks ago saying that, you know, if we don't sort this one out, we're not only going to miss our housing targets, we're going to miss our climate change targets, we're going to miss our infrastructure targets, we're going to miss, you know, all our targets. So it is central. I suppose to reflect on what happened over the last uh, 24 hours, you know, it is unfortunate, as Jack said, that some of this appears to still have to be worked out. I mean, they've been talking about this for an awful long time. We've been hearing about this review of the planning process that the Attorney General, you know, has submitted to government uh, over the summer, I think. You would think they might be a little further ahead in terms of bottoming out the detail of all this. And, and secondly, you think they might be a little further ahead in terms of agreeing among themselves in cabinet what exactly needs to happen, uh, because it seems strange to me that you know no sooner is this discussed by the cabinet than the Green Party is out, uh, you know, briefing that it has problems with some of this. You know, where that's no criticism of the Green Party, but you know, did they not discuss this among themselves at cabinet beforehand or in you know the smoke filled rooms? I suppose the Greens wouldn't be in smoke filled rooms, but you know, in, in well ventilated rooms. Uh, beforehand, uh, you know what, what you know what should be done and, and and how the the balance is going to be made. I mean, we have a problem here, and one way to illustrate it to look at that uh, big project out in Rohini that has been before the courts and before Broad Planola now since twenty fifteen. So this is the the plot of land beside Saint Paul's College in Rohini, which is now rocked up or racked up, shall I say? four separate decisions from on board Pranola and 10 different sets of legal proceedings. It was nixed by the High Court a couple of years ago uh, under the strategic housing development process. It's now going through the new process, which goes to the local, uh, the city council. It has nixed it again on the basis uh, largely that the developers didn't take into account the flight path and the feeding habits of the light-bellied uh, Brent Goose. It, it just strikes me, that this is an extraordinarily inefficient way to make decisions. And I'm not arguing one way or the other whether that land should have been built on, but goodness me, we've got to find a quicker way of deciding uh, these things and, you know, get and bottling them out. And I think the timelines included in this bill uh, and the commitments that decisions will be made within particular periods of time, even if we don't know what those periods are, are, are one of the key things to it and one of the welcome elements to it as well. Yeah, I should say, I actually know that site in Rainy very well. I often walk past it. I'm also very fond of the Brent geese who fly over my house quite a lot at this time of year. But listening to that, Jack, and just in relation to, to Cliff's point there about, 
you know, people talking to each other in government before these things are released. Does the Green Party have a particular kind of a set of contradictions that it needs to resolve here? I think a few years back it might have been simpler. You might have expected, you know, the Greens to be the defenders of the Brent Goose in in all circumstances. But there's a there's an equal or maybe even more pressing imperative now to get to work on the really serious climate mitigation uh, issues around building public transport, sustainable ways of living, all those types of things. So does the Green Party maybe need to figure out where, where it's at on some of these issues too? That's certainly the view amongst other parties in government. Um, I was on a radio this morning discussing this uh, topic and I got a, a text from a senior source in one of the other parties um, giving out about the Greens and, and saying they were specifically briefed in detail, as, as was each party in government, not just by officials, but by the Attorney General as well. No objections were raised at leaders' meeting or any other meetings where it was discussed. So there's clearly a sense here um, amongst the other coalition parties that the Greens have been kept in the loop here. I'm not sure that's one that is entirely shared by the Greens. Um, certainly members of of, of uh, their, their backbench team feel that they, they haven't been uh, kept in the loop, but um, there's clearly a, a division emerging at, at the heart of government over this, and it's going to be a, a very tricky one to manage heading in, into Christmas. Now, I suppose what, what helps is that this doesn't naturally build towards a head anytime soon. And because, you know, we're at the start of a process where we are beginning to see the, the fruits of, of a working group convened by the Attorney General last summer to begin working on this draft bill, but at the beginning of another process where that draft bill starts working its way through the Oireachtas, there is a very obvious um, kick for touch here or a play for time because the, the thing hasn't even started pre-legislative scrutiny yet. There is plenty of, of, of chances here to kind of reform the architecture and address perhaps or explain perhaps some of the provisions within the bill that might go some way to, to mollifying some of the concerns that have erupted over the last couple of days because it goes through pre-legislative scrutiny, then obviously both heads of the Oireachtas and all the associated committee stages and so on. Um, the question, I suppose, is is whether you know it, it, it comes out the other side of that process as anything uh, approaching you know fit for purpose or if it kind of gets, if, if the waters get muddied, if it gets watered down and if it kind of gets removed from its its intended purpose and we end up not fundamentally reforming the planning system because that I think will be a, a pretty serious vulnerability for the government because at the moment where as things stand they can probably be fairly accused of not getting the policy side of this right and also not preparing the political side of it, of it adequately so far from being what it was initially conceived as which is a bit of a send-off for Michal Martin with a fairly significant piece of fundamental structural reform uh, to like a, a, an outs outstanding public policy sore spot. Uh, it looks like it might end up actually becoming a bit of a bit of um, a bit of an albatross around the neck over the Christmas period and into the new year because I don't see these I don't see these concerns being easily squared away. And and I think it's also worth noting as well that this is not necessarily the uh, the group of kind of cranky uh, green rebel backbenchers who are diligent and articulate and smart in their own way but you know don't necessarily speak for the leadership this is also at cabinet level it's 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 Roderick O'Gorman and Catherine Martin and it's also TDs like Stephen Matthews the chair of the, of the housing committee who will be seen as being quite close to the leadership you know so I don't think that this is something that can be easily explained away as just a few fringe voices on the edge of the Green Party or within the social justice wing of the Green Party. I think that to an extent you're talking about the mainstream of the Green Party here and, and, and the mainstream of the Green Party, that ecological kind of bent that exists within there, does worry about things like access to justice and planning and environmental planning. 
and long-term structures that affect this, you know. So I think that they've they have a job of work to do here, uh, and it's arguably, as Cliff said, you know, it's a job of work that should have already been done. One thing I'd be interested in, Jack, is do you think the Greens' objections are in relation to the the detail of this or some of the principles of it, if you like? So you were you were talking about the the direction that this legislation was heading in. So we've got the the idea that the scrutiny should take place at the, and the rows should take place earlier in the process and, you know, in relation to how local areas are going to be developed, which is a fairly fundamental thing. And then, and then the whole planning up of, speeding up of the planning process. Are the Greens kind of not on board on, on, on part of that or is it, is it more the detail they're not on board of? And, and in other words, things that may be sorted out with a bit of coming and going. I think everyone is on board with the principle, you know, in some ways, like I mean, everyone kind of agrees that the planning system doesn't doesn't necessarily achieve the kind of outcomes and isn't fit for purpose in the way that we all want it to be. But yeah, I do think there are also red flags at a kind of principle level for them. Like, I mean, if you, if you are talking about and to drill into some of the some of the reforms that are suggested by the briefing document that was produced by government yesterday around judicial reviews, if you are talking about kind of curtailing the standing of an individual or a group when it comes to taking a, a judicial review, if you're saying that someone has to prove that they're directly affected by it, or that environmental NGOs have to meet this kind of pre-existing set of criteria, that becomes a kind of access to justice issue um, for the Green Party. And that and that's something that I think will take a lot of explaining away. I think part of the, of the problem here is that at, at, at some level, whether it be backbench or cabinet or perhaps even leadership, um, this hasn't been sufficiently explained away. And, and talking to people in the other, other government parties this morning, they're arguing very strongly that, you know, there's a misconception out there about the extent to which these rights will be narrowed, you know, and there's a misconception out there about, you know, resident associations, which is something that we've been writing about in the paper ourselves, um, and and the idea that a resident association would not be able to to take a challenge or a judicial review, uh, which is something that the Green Party is kicking back very strongly against. Now, I would argue that, you know, if there's a misconception out there, it's the government's own fault because that is the example that is issued in their own documentation that was published yesterday. They talk about effectively narrowing the scope for resident associations. So, I mean, they've they have made a rod for their own back here. This is not necessarily a a problem, you know, that the, the that is a, a an invention or originates with the media or how we're explaining things. You know, I think that there there's there's a deeper problem here, and there needs to. There needs to be a, a meeting of the minds uh, between the, the three respective parties of government and they need to sort this out because um, it's, a, it's a fairly kind of, I wouldn't say febrile, but like it's, 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 there's just a lot of kind of threshold risks around the hand, handover of the Taoiseach position. It's just something that hasn't happened before. And while I don't think this is a coalition threatener in any way, shape or form, the last thing you want is another big thing happening, a controversy to be managed uh, just at the time that you know you're having a change of personalities and approach in the in the office of the T-shirt, because obviously the next question is is going to be uh, how's how's Lee Riker going to handle this? You know he's someone with a different style and approach, as myself and Simon Carswell were writing about in last Saturday's Irish Times to to Michal Martin, who is seen as someone who can kind of find the common threads of consensus that bind the government together and remind people why they're all in the same room, trying to work at the same thing, even though they may, they may disagree around the edges. You know, Riker is more straightforward, more, more, more abrupt and blunt. So it'll be interesting to see how he handles that and if he's able to kind of pour oil on these particularly and suddenly troubled waters. So is that maybe one of the reasons for these jitters this week, is that everybody's a bit jittery and the pulses are racing a bit highly and so that people are more likely to kind of, you know, take exception to something than they might be in a month's time or a month ago? Not necessarily. I just think it's it's a case of not having 
prepared the landing zone. Like I was talking about the neither the policy nor the politics of this being particularly squared away uh, a little while ago. And, um, you know, ministers kind of sit on top of these big giant policy making machines that they kind of to a greater or lesser extent control um, or are controlled by. And they can arrange them in particular ways to align with political goals. And that's what Dara Bryan and I suppose Michal Martin um, and the rest of the senior leadership of Fianna have tried to do. They made planning reform a big giant thing that they wanted to achieve before leaving office. And it has produced this kind of, this article that feels almost like it's still in gestation and, and they haven't adequately prepared the, the the political landing zone for it. So I think I think if there's a sin... If there's a right to be wronged here, that's it. I'm not necessarily sure that people are, are particularly on edge, but it's just another another factor that has to be accounted for and controlled for. So I suppose the thing then, Cliff, is that you know there's obviously work to be done here. There may be some compromises. There may even be some long fingering. Uh, from the perspective of this government and its prime political objective, as stated, I believe, by itself, which is to start addressing the housing crisis in a meaningful way, by the time this legislation is enacted and is being, you know, the effects of it are being seen on the ground, the term of this government will be over, won't it? As someone said to me a few weeks ago, if, if new houses aren't being built, uh, aren't being started kind of now-ish or early next year, you know, there's no way they're going to be finished before the next general election. And uh, that is the uh, the measuring rod, I suppose, or one of the key measuring rods that the government is going to be judged on, uh, how many houses are built and one of the problems it faces now, it, there was a bit of an uplift post-COVID this year. It looks like about 28,000 uh, new houses will be finished. But one of the worrying things now is that new starts seem to be falling off a bit uh, and planning permission uh, applications seem to be falling off a bit as well. And I think they are clear signs uh, that the housing market is starting to struggle and that developers are starting to struggle again in terms of making the sums add up in some of the kind of key developments they're looking at. I, th- I think the particular crunch area here is going to be apartment buildings. These are the ones where viability seems to be most difficult to establish. Uh, but they're also uh, the kind of, you know, apartments and, and denser living developments are the kind of central to the government's strategic planning objectives. Uh, in other words, you know, if we're going to live in a more climate friendly way, People are going to have to live in, you know, smaller, uh, smaller developments, smaller houses, uh, smaller, you know, apartment buildings closer to where they work, uh, closer to where, you know, they operate so that they're not driving around in cars all the time. And, and it strikes me that, you know, the planning process has been very badly set up to deal with this because every time, particularly in city centre areas or in already inhabited areas where these new developments have to be, you know, if we're, if we're to aim for this denser living thing, rather than out in suburbia or out in, you know, the middle of Meath or Louth, where a lot of the new developments have been, particularly if they're going to be there, they are the ones that are going to get the most objections because there are, by definition, more people living nearby, more people are going to be upset by the building. Uh, you know, we see it out north, north I'm in Malahide, see it out north of me here in Donabate. We see it in the Rohini development we spoke about there earlier. The ones that are in the city centre are the ones that are going to get the most objections. And that is the biggest challenge, I think, for the planning process. It's also kind of a a more kind of philosophical, fundamental challenge, I think, for the government, because I don't think anyone has really explained to people uh, and explained, I suppose, to, to, to younger people or potential house buyers in particular, that this is kind of a new way of living 
uh, that that is planned as a, as a really central part of the government's climate strategy. You know, are are we are are we bought into this new vision of denser living? I don't think it's been sold to us. I don't think we've seen developments coming on stream that everyone has gone to look and say, oh, that's you know that looks rather nice. You know, I, I trade down from a slightly bigger suburban house to a slightly smaller you know apartment or or, or or terraced house or whatever because this works and i'm closer to public transport and there's a nice park next door and you know i can get to everything within 15 minutes so i think we've as well as a planning issue i think there's a wider issue here of selling this whole vision to the public yeah i mean i agree with that although i think and it's a story for another day if you're bringing people along to have a look at those apartments it would be better if they hadn't had their general overall quality degraded by reductions in planning requirements over the last decade or so, so you've no bloody storage space and various other problems that make it more difficult for a family to live in an actual apartment in the first place. But that's my rant. I think you're right, Hugh. There's there's a conundrum here that I don't know the answer to, which is I absolutely agree with you. If people are going to live in that in that kind of environment, it has to be a nicer, a nice environment. But you, you, then you talk to the house builders, they say, look, this doesn't make sense financially. We can't build houses and, and sell them at prices that people can afford. So I think that's where you get into the inevitability of more state involvement here and a state subsidy somewhere in the system. And the key thing for the government is to ensure that that subsidy is in, is in the right place, if you like, and has the right effect. Yeah, we're definitely going to be returning to this subject again in 2023, but we will leave it there for the moment. Thanks to Jack and Cliff. And by the way, don't forget that you can glean much more of their wisdom by taking the simple step, if you haven't done so already, of taking out a subscription to irishtimes.com. Now, we're going to take a break and we'll be back with Naomi O'Leary. Naomi O'Leary, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Hugh. Interesting times this week in Brussels, very dramatic events around the European Parliament. Very dramatic. I mean, it's not often that you have, you know, police, investigators, prosecutors entering European Parliament buildings and sealing off offices and seizing computers and smartphones and like sticking notices on the doors saying that no one can go in now because it's, you know, part of an investigation and stuff. It's, uh, yeah, it's, really dramatic events and it's being referred to as one of the biggest scandals ever to hit the EU institutions. So these are really a, a range of allegations of uh, of corruption or malfeasance of one sort or another involving members of the European Parliament and uh, the Qatari government. Is that right to say? So specifically what the Federal Prosecutor's Office has said is that they are investigating um, corruption, criminal organisation and money laundering. Um, they haven't said specifically what state it involves. They say it's uh, in the ambit of the European Parliament, so people in influential positions, positions of power in the in, in the European Parliament or around it, um, and essentially all the reporting around it, so, you know, sources close to the prosecutor's office and so on, they have been um, pointing the finger to Qatar. Um, and Qatar itself has denied any wrongdoing. But um, yeah, that's it's widely reported to be about that. Although it has been interesting to see that since this has all come out, various MEPs have suggested that this is a wider issue, and there could, you know, it's far from only Qatar that was seeking to influence lawmakers in the European Parliament. Yeah, I noticed today on Political Europe that it was suggested that a particular uh, deal agreed between the um, the European Union and Qatar for access for for its airline into Europe that might that might end up being uh, involved in this in some way. That's one of the files that's now being under review. So the European Parliament delayed a vote that it was due to have on visa liberalisation for Qatar and Kuwait. It sent that 
um, that legislation back to committee stage. So basically delaying it and saying it needed to be reconsidered now in the light of what happened. And also, like you point out, the Free Skies Agreement, which is about basically giving Qatar Airlines free access to European um, skies. That's also come now under focus a lot. Um, and there's sort of suspicion where if there was anyone who was sort of conspicuously making very friendly statements about Qatar in the run-up to the, the World Cup to do with their labour rights record or anything like that, all of that is coming under renewed scrutiny. Now, it's not uncommon for lobbying to become a, a hot political issue around around any representative assembly of any sort. Uh, um, I mean, as a rule in Brussels, are the streets of the city and the areas around the offices, around the, the, the chambers, are they full of lobbyists setting up meetings and, and acting on behalf of their clients? It's a huge folk, like it's a huge hub of lobbying. Um, it's estimated that there's about twenty thousand lobbyists working in Brussels, so they'd outnumber journalists easily, you know, many times over. So it is a struggle to even keep up with this. Um, I should say as well that like there's there's different kinds of lobbyists, and it's not that every meeting with a lobbyist is necessarily bad. You know, a lot of people who make legislation point this out that when you're making laws, it's actually really important to consult with stakeholders and the people who will be affected. So if something's going to be affecting farmers, you would go and speak to the representations of, uh, representatives of farming organisations, for example, and you would like talk to them about what effect it will have on the ground. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself. But what's, you know, what's coming into focus now is the, that the, the rules, particularly in the European Parliament, about declaring that kind of meeting, those are very lax. Um, and there's been a, a number of uh, political groups in the European Parliament have been pushing for a long time for them to be strengthened. Um, and I can get into a bit about, you know, what kind of meetings MEPs do have to declare and, you know, where Irish MEPs sort of fall on the spectrum and so on, if you like. Yes, please do. Just a little bit, because I know you've written about this in the past a little. Yeah. Yeah, by coincidence, I actually wrote about it a week ago. Um, so uh, MEPs generally do not have to declare most meetings that they have with interest groups. They only have to declare under the rules ones that are related to particular special positions that they might have in relation to a certain legislative file. So if they're the rapporteur, um, let's say, or the shadow rapporteur, that's like who has responsibility for following a particular piece of legislation for on behalf of a political party, if they meet with any interest groups in relation to that specific legislation, they're supposed to declare that. And equally, if they're a chair, if they chair a committee on something, but that's actually a very small, small subsection of the kinds of lobby uh, meetings with lobbyists that MEPs would typically have, lobbies or charities, NGOs or citizens' representatives, whoever they might be. Usually, the sort of meetings they have are much more broad, and uh, you know, and it's just considered a normal day-to-day -day part of MEPs' work that they do that. But the Green Party, for example, and some others, they just declare all the lobby meetings, uh, whether it's covered by the rules or not. And they even get their staff to as well. And the reason that they do that is because they just follow the rules that are in place for the European Commission, because the Commission do have stricter rules than the Parliament does. Um, but there's been a lot of pushback from other political groups against having to do that. Um, and then when it comes to expenses as well, this is something I started to look into a bit more this week. Um, on top of their salary, which is already like €9,000 a month, um, MEPs get as well nearly €5,000 monthly in a general expenditure allowance. And that's supposed to be like their office expenses and stuff to do with their work as MEPs. But 
So there's no problem with it per se. It's just that they don't have to keep, they don't have to submit any receipts about it. They don't have to say what it was spent on or provide any proof at all. It's just sort of wired to them. In theory, they're supposed to give back any of it that's unused, but you can see how this would be open to abuse. Um, anyway, some MEPs, I, I had a look and three out of Ireland's 13 MEPs have voluntarily filed declarations about that general expenditure allowance. Um, Sinn Féin's Chris McManus and the two Green MEPs, Kieran Cuff and Grace O'Sullivan, have filed voluntary declarations about those expenses. So I've basically been emailing all the MEPs this week and asking people, and I, I just actually asked Tisha Michal Martin whether they would commit to voluntarily following stricter standards, because although there's no suggestion of any wrongdoing by Irish MEPs, this whole scandal just shows why it's important to have greater transparency standards. Because if, if in, in that environment of just lax reporting, if nobody has to report anything, it allows abuse, it allows those wrongdoers to get away with it. And it's also just really important for public trust. And what about the rules governing political donations to members of the European Parliament? I mean, we're familiar with the rules um, with SIPO and the way that works in Ireland. What regulations and rules and policing are MEPs subject to? That's a really good question. I have to look into that more. Um, it could be that they're subject to different national rules. Um, I know that is the case, for example, when it came to uh, the arrests. So we know that one person who was arrested held a current position at the European Parliament, a senior position. Um, and for cases like that, some countries have some sort of constitu- different levels of constitutional immunity for elected representatives. And the federal police said, you know, they this was something they had to take into account. The president of the European Parliament in person, Roberta Metzola, said that she actually physically attended one of the searches, which was required as part of the, you know, sort of legal requirements um, about them. And they also said, um, the federal police, that... Um, in some cases, you can arrest an MEP without any problems if you, you catch them in the act of something. Um, and it's suggested that one of the people who who was caught up in this investigation was in the act of sort of, you know, getting money away in a suitcase. And that was part of the reason or the justification of why they were able to actually act and, and do the arrests. So there can be complexities in terms of legalities that for different elected representatives. And I'd imagine that that could be the case for MEPs. But they do have to declare benefits um, so, for example, two Irish MEPs have filed declarations about uh, trips that they went on. So um, the left independent MEPs, Mick Wallace and Claire Daly, both filed a declaration about a trip that they made to Venezuela. Um, and they were invited there to be uh, to, to, to monitor elections, basically invited by the government. And their declarations show that they were put up in a five-star hotel for eight nights um, and and that you know that was that's the details of that declaration are all contained in a in a, a declaration that they made um, to the European Parliament system. Is part of the backdrop to this really the fact that over the last 10 years or more uh, the European Parliament has been pushing for and has had some success in achieving uh, greater power within the overall picture of, of the European institutions because it represents the directly elected portion as opposed to the other parts. And that therefore there is more potential for bad behaviour, but there's also more power being wielded and therefore it's a more attractive target for bad behaviour. I think the nature of the power of the European Parliament is, is sometimes a little bit different from national parliaments. Um, it deals with 
so much legislation and there were so many MEPs, you know, there's uh, like 630 of them odd. Um, they, the power that they can wield, they, an, an MEP can easily kind of just get lost in the European Parliament and not have much of an impact. So they have two choices about how to exercise their power. They can become a kind of an activist and they can use the the name of member of the European Parliament, that sort of brand, to to call for things, to demand for things, to basically campaign um, on particular issues. Or they can become uh, a sort of a legislative nerd, get really, really close to files, get um, positions of responsibility in terms of forming legislation. And the, the, the like the legislative mill of the European Parliament is where the laws, the European laws are like drawn up and finalized. And it's because it covers 450 million people, a small change in a sentence, even the change of a word can have massive implications. And that's where you might get lobbyists coming in, pressing for a certain sentence in a legislative file to be watered down slightly or eased. Um, and that's so hard to monitor because there's just there's so much going on in the European Parliament. It's really difficult to to even for MEPs themselves to be fully on top of the legislative files that are going through. You know, you might have like you have 20 votes going on, you know, in, in one after another. It's, and it's very difficult for even the MEPs to be on top of of everything, let alone like the journalists who are just massively outnumbered by the interest groups that are following these things. Um, so that's where the the interest in in influencing comes in, and also there was some kind of joking almost that like if Qatar was trying to influence MEPs in this way, were they wasting their time because they don't have that much power, you know? Um, so maybe the like the the impact was overestimated by those who were seeking to to influence. But having said that, something that's really interesting to note is that. Third countries, like countries outside of the European Union, really care about votes that go on in the European Parliament, even when they're kind of ignored by citizens or they're not really noticed by citizens. Like, for example, there was a big vote on Russia, uh, describing it, a decision to describe it as a, MEPs decided to call it a terrorist state or a country that uses terrorism as part of its tools. And, you know, this wasn't, this didn't gain very much notice at all. But in Russia, it did because immediately afterwards the european parliament suffered a cyber attack so th there's an interesting some imbalance sometimes between how important its vote its actions are seen internally and domestically and to voters even and the amount of attention that it's getting internationally and from interest groups as well so to be clear then that's very interesting so there's two there's two separate things here one is a sort of a performative element and we're familiar with the European Parliament passing you know votes of support for this or opposition to that and if you are perhaps a a not particularly savory government you might you know derive some pleasure in some way from seeing you know your MEP stand up and say actually your human rights are not too bad which is mm -hmm. I think is what happened in relation to one MEP and and Qatar and that you know one can argue about how much value that has or how moral or uh, that is but the other stuff sounds more important to me potentially the deeply complex mm -hmm. stuff the word here or the paragraph there that can actually confer a business or competitive advantage yeah like the statements that MEPs make are valued like the it's valuable to have footage of someone who is in a position that appears to be very important making declarations that are sort of in line with your point of view or whatever and you know you can see that in that 
countries around the world, like state media, use footage from the European Parliament all the time. So even if speeches go unnoticed by, you know, the citizens that might have voted for a particular MEP, they don't go no- unnoticed elsewhere. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think the that's where it comes down to. It's the subtle, you know, the change of a word. Like one example that was given to me, I think I've, I've mentioned this one before in some venue or another, but it was regarding um, wetlands, the protection of wetlands. And the aim of the initial legislation was to restore the ability of European wetlands, wetlands to be carbon sinks. And if wetlands are damaged, uh, they actually let out carbon. So they produce carbon. So the, if, but if you can restore them, then they, they trap in loads of carbon. So they, they can either be helpful in terms of preventing or reducing climate change, or they can contribute to it. And this, the word that was changed in this particular piece of legislation was the word restore was changed to maintain. So instead of restoring the wetlands, which would have meant that they would suck up more carbon and help prevent climate change, it was maintain. And maintaining the wetlands in their current state meant that they were degraded and they were going to continue to let out carbon. So that's the kind of difference that just changing one word can make. And there just isn't enough like over, there, is, there aren't, frankly, enough journalists covering the European Parliament to, to know uh, the, you know, the ins and outs of every piece of legislation, uh, like entire teams working for political parties struggle to keep on top of it. Um, and, and that's where I think the greatest risk for, for influence is. Is this a potentially a real blow to the reputation of the European Parliament? I get a sense reading the coverage of this over the last uh, day or so. There's a certain amount of schadenfreude among perhaps other arms of European government that um, the MEPs often tend to take a high moral tone when commenting on, on other events and now they're kind of caught with their pants down. Correct. Yeah, there's a constant battle for power between the European Parliament, the European Council, European Commission. Um, the council, which is basically the national governments, has the greatest power. Um, they, you know, really set the agenda in terms of the laws that are passed in the EU and what's politically possible or politically not possible. Um, the Commission proposes legislation, and that has that you know comes with great power as well. And um, the European Parliament can't really propose anything; it just considers and improves and debates things. So it's it's always sort of pushing to imp- to increase its powers like arguing that they're the ones that are directly represented and they should have greater power and so on. And they also, like you say, they can they can kind of take the moral high ground sometimes. Like it, it was remarked to me the other week um, but that sometimes you have political parties in the European Parliament taking a really hard line on something like Hungary, for example, saying that because of rule of law and the backsliding of democracy in Hungary, that it, you know no money, not a penny more of Euro- European cash should go towards it. But then you could have representatives of the same political party who happen to be national leaders in council, they're stopping that. So saying, actually, Hungary should get some money or we should come to a compromise or we should be softer. So the parliament can be more outspoken in that way. Um, and, you know, a, a critic could or a, or a cynic could say it's posturing. Um, but, you know, um, so, yeah, definitely um, there it's in the interests of, of many people that the European Parliament be discredited. And one of the examples of this has been Hungary. Like the European Parliament has been very loud in condemning corruption in Hungary and the backsliding of democracy, as I mentioned, um, the fact that elections there are now, in according to international observers, taking place in an unfair environment without a fully free media. Um, so the... 
in response then to the European itself, Parliament itself being implicated in this huge corruption scandal and, you know, the, the IT facilities of staff being seized and frozen and everything by the police. I mean, the response to this by the Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban was to post a meme of people laughing, you know, people laughing and saying, you know, they talk about corruption in Hungary, whereas all the time, you know, there's this corruption going on in the European Parliament itself. So definitely it undermines its sort of moral authority on things like that. I suppose finally then, Naomi, do do the people who you work alongside in Brussels, do they anticipate major change or significant reform of any sort arising out of what's happened? I think we'll see. There's a lot of talk about what to do now. There's talk about an independent ethics body being set up or, you know, some kind of reform. But really, I mean, I think all they need to do to improve things is that actually enforce what's currently in place. So like there's just very little enforcement of anything. There's not really consequences for breaking things, um, for breaking the rules that there are. And the rules that there are are really lax. So, you know, MEPs have a lot of tools to actually police themselves. And we saw a lot of outrage from MEPs because, you know, they felt discredited by this and they were furious that their colleagues um, who, you know, are accused of being on the take for this or that. Um, and, you know, there was real rage. And when there was a vote in the European Parliament to strip um, one of its vice presidents, the Greek MEP Eva Kiley, of her position as vice president, the the vote was like completely emphatic. There was only one vote against it, which was, I, I've never seen that happen before in the Parliament. So, you know, it was very united on this. But, you know, MEPs still are hesitant to commit themselves to following the greater standards of transparency and voluntary declaration that they could easily do. They have staff, they have offices. All of this is paid by public money. It's just about allocating a certain percentage of the money that they get from the public to pay an accountant, you know, to keep their receipts, to make the declaration. But the answer is not to make it voluntary, surely, to make it obligatory. Indeed, that, that could, but you know, it's up to them. If they're so angry about it, they have the power to do it right now. They don't need to wait for a big discussion about, you know, a reform and a huge debate about all of this. They actually could do it right now without any of this being put on the back burner. And, you know, this kind of, who knows how long it could take for a debate about what an ethics body could look like. And, you know, in the past, the parliament has a record of pushing back against stricter rules. So wanting to keep the current situation which suits everybody where, you know, it's everyone's just sort of trusted to do it. Uh, which clearly hasn't succeeded in preventing this kind of very damaging corruption. Naomi O'Leary, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon. Our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, thanks very much for listening.